Good morning. There are passages of Scripture, if you're new to the Bible, it is the very Word of God. It's a supernaturally put-together book written across some 1,400 years by 40 different authors in three different languages. That in itself tells you something about it. If you could commission a foundation to write a book over 1,400 years of human history, and that self-perpetuating commission acted at different times in history to pick authors and even under their supervision told them to write about what they thought about the world and what life was like. If we published that book in the year 3500, it would be a terrible mess. Not Scripture. Scripture tells one amazing overarching narrative of God who made the world and acts in it. And because Scripture has so many different kinds of writings, some of them are very accessible. Their meaning is plain. It immediately makes sense to us. You can read the Proverbs, for instance, many of the Proverbs which commend things like faithfulness and loyalty and hard work, planning ahead. You can share a proverb written a thousand years before Jesus was born with a seven-year-old boy, and if he can corral himself for 20 seconds and you can explain the proverb to him, he'll get it and profit from it. There are other passages of Scripture whose meaning is not so readily apparent, and there are some that strike us, let's be honest, as flat-out strange. Today's passage in the Gospels is one of those passages. There's all kinds of barriers that you're going to have to fight through if you're a typical American in the 21st century. If you were born here and raised here, may not apply if you came from another part of the world, but if you were born and raised here, there is a lot in this passage that you'll immediately question. I'm in Luke chapter 11. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for quite a long time now with Jesus. And Luke chapter 11, right after the Lord's Prayer, we find verse 14. And this is one of those strange passages. It's strange because it deals with an invisible world that God knows is there, that actually is part of human reality, but it's unseen because it's spiritual. This isn't a proof, but it's something to help you understand the tension you might feel as you read this section this day in the life of Jesus. A scholarly journal years ago, decades ago, published the work that one of the world's leading anthropologists is most famous for. His name was Dr. Paul Hebert. He was born to missionary parents in India. He went and returned to work there himself, but along the way became one of the leading scholarly anthropologists and being bicultural, he helped us understand how most people experience the world in the West. In other words, on our side of the world. Hebert explains that most people believe in the West that there are two tiers to reality. There's two levels to reality. One is the level of religion, the other is the level of science. And people in the West, Dr. Hebert says, 
We believe and we've been told, we're told incessantly through podcasts, through TED Talks, through social media, through memes, through lectures, whether you're at a fine university or just perusing the news, one of the dominant messages in the West is that the lower level, the level of science, is the only reality that exists in the world. The only facts that are available to you are those that can be determined and brought to you by science. So you have a physicist like Neil deGrasse Tyson who speaks about truth like this. He says, well, there's objective truth. For instance, the sun rising in the east, the sun being hot, the force of gravity, the orbit of, of the planet. That is objective truth. And then he says, if you want to talk about religious or spiritual things, those are personal truths. Well, that's very kind and condescending and... and, and, and very condescending and, and nice of Dr. Tyson, but frankly, there's no such thing as a personal truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Does that make sense? Because what if my personal truth clashes with your personal truth? He's really just being, he's a very bright man, he's really just being clever. He's a product, though he would deny it, of this lower level tier of reality. If you're philosophically minded, philosophers will tell you that this particular way of looking at the world has names like this, materialism or physicalism or even scientism. In other words, all that reality is are things that are observable, like this table, like my own body. People who follow this train of thought out to its logical extension, they wouldn't put it in quite this word, but they will say that you are a massive, wildly improbable cosmic accident. That mathematically speaking, there's no, absolutely no reason for you to exist at all. But through, given a lot of time, everything, absolutely nothing, produced everything, which eventually led to you, and you and I are sort of really super smart monkeys who have clawed our way through this objective reality that only consists of physical matter. And some of them will take their thought to this level. They say, because biological matter, because this is all that there is, you actually have no free choices and no free will in the world. You're a product only of your biology. The chemistry, and the, the chemistry and the electricity that's animating the meat suit, you have the illusion of making choices and of loving things and choosing, but you really don't. You're biologically compelled by all of these, all of these years and all of this time to act the way that you do. Any of this familiar to any of you? If it's not, that undergirds so much of the world today. Dr. Hebert goes on to say, the Western world will admit that maybe out there somewhere in the unseen world there is something it will call religion, spirits and gods and the afterlife and eternal matters, things that can't be dragged into a lab and put to the test. Those things exist, but they certainly can't be knowable. And your opinion is as good as anybody else's, which is why the most common thing 
in the Western world is when anybody makes a claim about truth or morality or what is good or right in the world, the common answer that comes back is, well, that's true for you. Certainly not binding upon me. How dare you? And Hebert says this is a product of philosophical ideas that undergird our side of the world, and the name of the article is The Excluded Middle. And he says what the Western world cannot see and will not allow for is that these two realities, the world you can see and the world that you cannot, interact And the spiritual world, which is just as real as the physical world, the difference is simply that it cannot be seen, actually deals in physical reality. Now, why am I telling you all this? feel like you've been dragged into a college lecture hall all of a sudden, right? I'm only giving you a little framework to tell you why 2,000 years after Jesus, about 200 years into the American Project, undergirded as we are by philosophical ideas that tell you this matter is all that there is, the story you're about to hear will sound strange to your ears. And you'll wonder whether any of this is actually true, or whether perhaps Jesus was confused and simply didn't understand psychiatry and emotional upset. Read with me in Luke chapter 11, you'll see what I mean. It says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. Strange enough for you? Already it's strange. Luke, this gospel writer, one of the last writers in the Bible across these 1,400 years who happens to be a physician himself, says very matter-of-factly, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. And Luke is dealing in the excluded middle. He's just telling you as a matter of fact, oh, by the way, this is what happened next. Jesus, whose supernatural origin he's already explained to you, Jesus, the Son of God, who speaks for God and acts like God because he actually is God on the earth, this is what he was doing. He was casting out a demon, and that particular demon was mute, so when the demon came out, the man spoke and the people marveled. And understandably, if you can visualize this, there were reactions. If ordinary people are seeing someone deal with the unseen demonic world in such a matter-of-fact and powerful way, of course there's going to be a response. Check it out. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. What do you think of those two reactions? Either of them any good? No. One of them said he cast out demons because he himself is satanic. He's in alliance with the chief demon. The other crowd said, let's see something even bigger. Can you make something happen with the sun? We see you exercising personal power with one human being. How about something cosmic? But he, knowing their thoughts, number one Bible reading tip in this church, what is it? Slow down. 
Luke just gives you a little insight into what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he does. They're not saying these things to him. Evidently, these are conversations off to the side, but Jesus knows their thoughts. He doesn't hear their words. He understands what they're thinking. He said to them, see if you can follow his argument against this accusation of Jesus himself using the devil to cast out the devil. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Again, another name for Satan. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You follow his argument? He's making a very simple rebuttal. He's answering their attack, their blasphemous attack, that Jesus himself is devilish by saying, listen, you're seeing evil demons being cast out. It makes no sense for a house to turn against itself. If I cast out demons by demons, that would be self-defeating. What's going on here? Jesus is talking to you about an unseen reality that you live in daily that affects your daily life that you don't generally experience as true because of what Dr. Hebert calls the excluded middle. Please understand why I'm showing you this chart. It doesn't prove anything. It just explains reality as most Christians on this side of the world experience it. This week, we celebrated one of the saddest anniversaries in American history. We celebrated and remembered, honored rather, 9-11. I was in northern Mexico in a place so remote, I didn't know it existed, and so far and so hard to get to, I never went back. So my experience of 9-11 was very different from yours. I saw about three minutes of coverage mediated through Mexican journalists who themselves could not begin to understand what was happening on a little tiny black and white television set for about literally three minutes. And then I went to the pastor's conference that took me up into those mountains. It took me literally to move back to the United States to understand the magnitude and the shock and the horror of that day if you were living inside the United States. What happened on 9-11? The nation discovered that we were actually at war. We didn't know we were at war. A few people did, a few very brave and courageous souls who had worked every day to keep something from like that, something like that from happening, knew that there was a real and determined and cruel enemy that would do anything and everything to hurt the United States. But most of over 300 million people had no idea that a war was actually on. We had forgotten if we ever knew that much smaller attacks had taken place elsewhere. They just hadn't been very successful, and they hadn't received much attention. But when the towers came down, the nation suddenly had this brutal realization 
that there is a determined cruel enemy that will kill us all if given that opportunity. We're at war. So it is with the spiritual world. We're actually in the middle of a spiritual reality living in what most people exclude as the middle where the spiritual and the physical actually interact daily Jesus, the Son of God, knows that and is dealing with it, but you and I don't experience it, not because it's not there, but because the greatest victory you could ever have in war is make your opponent believe you don't even exist. See, I've taken no precautions against leprechauns this morning. I haven't. I've guarded against burglars. I locked my house and my car because I know and believe that burglars exist. I hide things. The rare times I leave anything valuable in my car, I hide it from sight and I always lock. Why? Because I know that someone may opportunistically walk by my car and say, oh, look, cool, a phone. Smash a window and there goes my phone. I know that burglars exist. Leprechauns, I don't believe in them, so I did nothing to protect myself against them. Most people in the West soaked in this thoroughly secular worldview that science and matter is all that exists, even to the point of you not actually having any choices because you're just a super smart monkey that is compelled by biology. We don't make any allowances for the spiritual world, but Jesus, the Son of God, walks among the reality that He made and knowing all that reality is, He deals with it. And once you see it in the Scripture, you can understand that Jesus is telling you about the spiritual reality, the world behind the world you can see all the time. Let me show you that in John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to his opponents, and he says this, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Whoa, that really got aggressive really, really quickly, didn't it? You were of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Here's Jesus describing Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus is pulling back the veil between this world and the next and telling you what part of that spiritual reality is like. The greatest greatest tactic that the devil has, at least in the West, is to tell you that he does not exist at all. If you do not believe that there is anything like a soul, there is nothing like eternity, there is no God that you have to deal with, there are no spirits and demons, this physical body is all that there is and all there ever can be, then you do nothing to deal with that reality. And that's where we are in the West. And that has seep through our cultural understanding so much that Christians often find themselves prayerless. See the connection? If there is no spiritual world beyond this one, if somehow I've bought that cultural assumption, why pray? 
If you've ever prayed and thought, this isn't doing any good, these are just words going out into the air, nobody's listening, he doesn't care, he may not even be there, that in itself is the nature of the spiritual battle. But Jesus himself is at war. Look what he says in Luke eleven twenty. He says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They've made their decision. The crowd is arguing about what Jesus is doing, and they're saying it's the devil. Jesus says, makes no sense. Why would the devil destroy his own? There's another explanation. I am doing these things by the finger of God, and what that means, what you see me doing, means something historic and huge that hadn't happened before that is happening now because the Son of God is walking on the earth. The kingdom of God has come upon you. You say, that's a really interesting phrase, the finger of God. Well, the reason it's interesting is because Jesus isn't making it up. He's actually quoting His Bible. See, the Bible of Jesus' day is what you and all I call the Old Testament. It was written some four, it was, its writing was completed some four hundred years before he was born. He grew up in the synagogue listening to it. It's evident from listening to, to him that he knows it by heart. Why did Jesus use the distinctive phrase, the finger of God? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting specifically the book of Exodus. Listen to Pharaoh's magicians. Remember the story, or at least you saw the movie, The Ten Commandments? Remember Pharaoh's magicians? They're doing, they're, they're using witchcraft to do their own magic, but then they run up against a wall. Here's what happens. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, we're out of ideas. We're out of power. A little biblical side note, the plagues of Egypt represent a deity. Each plague represents a God in Egypt. What's God doing? He's walking through the Egyptian pantheon, the Egyptian collection of God, and and destroying every single one of them as proof to both His people and to Egypt, I'm the real God. What was Pharaoh's response? His heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Moses is also going to use this same phrase of the finger of God. Let's look a little further in Exodus. He gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony. What are those? The Ten Commandments. He had gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Do you understand the, the connection that Jesus is making now? This isn't witchcraft. This isn't conjuring. I'm not a magician. What you're seeing here is not the devil fighting himself. That would make no sense. What you're seeing is the finger of God casting out these demons, which means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. You have this, look back with me in Luke chapter 11, verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What is this about? Well, it's a picture of warfare. And it's something that ancient armies and modern soldiers can tell you about. It talks about two 
Two soldiers, two strong men clashing, one defeating the other, and when one wins, the gear and the spoils of war belong to him. What is Jesus specifically telling you? Simply this, that he is stronger. That there is spiritual warfare, your soul is on the line, the reality you see is not the only reality that exists, but that Jesus himself is stronger. 1 John 3 verse 8 tells you that. This is written by one of the apostles who was beside Jesus when all this happens. Read it with me, 1 John 3 verse 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You ever notice that verse in your Bible? You probably read it. You know why you didn't see it? Because you and I live in this super secular culture so that even when we read supernatural things in the Bible, the influence of secular culture and the nature of spiritual warfare is so real that we just move past them. Why did the Son of God appear? Why is the finger of God casting out demons? To destroy the works of the devil. Why? Because Jesus is simply stronger. A war is on. See, I read a lot of Bible commentators this week. This is a strange passage. I've read it all my life. I hadn't studied it in the depth that I did this week. Even Bible commentators struggle a little bit with what to make of this. One of their common observations was that it seems that Luke just radically makes this subject change. He's, Jesus has been teaching about prayer, and then there's this strange story about a demon being cast out and people blaspheming and saying that Jesus himself is demon-possessed. And one commentator said, we don't really see the connection. May I humbly suggest, not as a scholar, but as a pastor, I definitely see a connection between prayer and spiritual war. Let me explain it to you like this. Pastor John Piper famously said that the way most Christians treat prayer is like a household intercom instead of a radio in the hands of a soldier. What's a household intercom for? Hey, Mom, we're out of ice. Can you bring us some more ice? Okay, honey, I'll be right there. Anything else? Would you like a snack? Oh, no, we're fine. My grandparents had a household intercom, and that's exactly what we did with it. You just asked for someone to bring you cool drinks into the den. How does a soldier treat his radio in war? How does a police officer or a first responder of any kind, how, does, how much does he value his radio? He protects it like his life. I asked two people, one just before service started, Talk to two people who've seen a lot of combat and ask them this question. If you were absolutely pressed to make a, poor, a personal choice, would you rather have your personal weapon or your radio going into war? They both said, that's tough, but I guess I'd have to take the radio. Why? Because if all you have is a personal weapon and no way to communicate with anyone else, when your gun is done, you're done. But if you can communicate with allies, when you can communicate with superior forces to bring their strength to bear on your behalf, that makes all the difference in the world. What is prayer? Prayer is that amazing 
open door from God who made all of reality and sees all the warfare and sees both the physical and the spiritual, knowing all about you and the war that rages for your soul, opening up the door to say to you, talk to me. It's very intentional that the Lord's Prayer closes with a request to not be led into temptation to be kept from evil and to be kept from the evil one. Why? Because there is a war on, and the good news is, is that Jesus is stronger. He is the one who appeared to destroy the works of the devil, and that's what he can do in your life. He can not only forgive your sin, he can destroy, he can roll back, he can set free the areas of your life that were taken captive by the reality of spiritual deception and sin. But the first thing you have to do is open your eyes to the idea that you're already in war. That's one thing. A second thing that Jesus tells me is in this strange, harsh little statement in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. Just stop right there. you imagine saying that to someone? Hey, if you're not with me, you're against me. Have you ever said that to anybody in your life? Pretty, pretty tough, isn't it? Why does he say this? Because there's no one like him. Listen to the words of Jesus. They only make sense if he's actually the Son of God. What evidence do we have to believe that He is who we claim? We have this ancient book written, the prophecies about Him, verifiably in your hands, written 700 and 1,000 years before He was born. And you can read His life in exquisite detail long before He is born. And then you can see him in his day with ample historical records to tell you about his life, walking among people and publicly doing all the things that this book tells you and calling his own shot, saying that just as promised, he was going to die on the cross for sins, die among evil men, be buried in the tomb of a rich man after being betrayed for a specific amount of money, but he was going to take his life back to prove that it was all true. And the people who heard that preferred to die horrible deaths as martyrs than to take the story back. Why? Because it's all true. If anyone else in human history says something like this, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters, they're an egotistical maniac. Listen to something much more familiar from Jesus. I am the way, do you know the rest of this? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except, hear me. You imagine the head of the United Nations getting up on Tuesday and saying that in front of the assembly? He'd be out of a job just like this. Someone would say, it finally got to him, he's cracked. Somebody go get him, he needs help. Get him a sedative, calm him down. Jesus says these sorts of things all the time. Why? Because he is putting 
the people in his day and through Scripture 2,000 years later, he is putting everyone who listens to him at a crossroads because Jesus is not only stronger to destroy the works of the devil, to set people free from the unseen reality that actually controls and influences their lives, whether they know it or not, Jesus is enormously divisive. He stands, he stands alone in human history and tells people, you have to choose. And that's also part of the spiritual warfare and part of the deception in the West is that you can believe anything you please and it doesn't make any difference at all. That's why a physicist like Tyson can say that claims about ultimate reality are just personal truths. No, there's no such thing. There are either personal truths or personal mistakes, but there can be no personal truths that conflict with one another. Does that make sense? Jesus is divisive, so much so that he then tells this strange story. Look in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, remember, he just cast a demon out. Now he's going to explain something about it. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What in the world is happening here? Why is he explaining this? You understand what he's saying? A demon is cast out of a person. It wanders for a time, finds no rest, goes back to the original life it once inhabited and finding that life clean but empty, brings others with it and makes the condition of that person worse than it was at the beginning. What in the world is this about? This is one of these sayings because Jesus said this long ago and far away in a whole other language and culture that makes even Bible scholars basically say, if I can give you a paraphrase from some of the reading I've been doing, they say, wait, what? What's he talking about? I think the context makes it really simple. The man he's just cast a demon out of has had his life ruined and he has literally been made mute, unable to speak because the effect of this demon in his life. Jesus apparently, Luke doesn't give us many details, just walks up and owns that situation. He's just completely in control of everything. It's not the first time that Luke has told us these kinds of stories. The Son of God who has appeared in the world to destroy the works of the devil is perfectly capable and powerful to destroy the works of the devil whenever and wherever he encounters them. He just walks up to this man and with the simple authority of someone completely in charge says, this is no longer part of your life. But now that man, like you and me, like everyone who hears Jesus, has a decision to make. Am I going to trust and follow this man? Am I going to bet my soul on this man? Or am I just going to get on with my life? And I think it's a personal warning saying to this man and to any others, listen, if you only experience temporary healing from me and you do not follow me, you don't entrust your entire life to me, you'll end up worse than before you met me. Why? Because Jesus is divisive. 
There's a reason that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of Christian persecution. Most people don't know that. In sheer numbers and in sheer atrocities, more Christian blood was spoiled and more Christian lives were ruined in the century that just passed than in any others and in many others combined. Why is that? Because Jesus is so radical and so unique that he doesn't allow himself to sit at the table with other people and just be one of the guys. This idea of all of the roads leading up the mountain to God is completely blown up by Jesus. He's not telling you that he is one of many paths up the mountain. He is telling you that he is the only way. In fact, he's telling you something better. He's telling you that he himself, being God, has come down the mountain, stood in your place, become one of us, so that you would know beyond any reasonable doubt exactly who God is and exactly what God wants. And if he has done all of that in human history, of course he's divisive because nobody else is coming this is literally all that God can do. God died on the cross for sins. What else is there? Now there's only a decision that sinful human beings have to decide whether to continue to trust themselves or trust Him instead. So He's divisive. And it's so tense in this story that somebody changes the subject. You ever been in a situation so uncomfortable? Usually happens well, when I was a child, we would have these giant Thanksgiving dinners when our family came home from Mexico, and we'd gather all the family weirdos, right? People haven't seen each other in a long, long time. We're all kind of forced to hang out for one long day. Is this anybody else's experience? And you got the one, well, I won't say exactly what he is to me, because, you know, there is a podcast, and who knows who might hear and get offended, but there's that one person in the family who blurts out something wildly offensive and reminds the family of its darkest day. Anybody, is this familiar to anybody else or is it just me? And then what happens, that gets so awkward that somebody says, wow, turkey's really good this year, huh? Good job, Grandma. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, and the bread. Oh, the bread. Listen, we just bought the bread at Safeway. The bread's no big deal. But we'd rather talk about the bread than deal with this terrible truth that so-and-so just threw on the table. Well, that's exactly what happens next. Jesus has cast out a demon. He's endured a blasphemy saying, you're a devil yourself. He's defended himself against that, telling them this makes no sense. But I will tell you this much. What you've actually seen is the stronger man coming in and destroying the person who holds people captive. In fact, I'm going through his stuff. I'm taking his spoils of war. And what all of you need to understand now is if you don't follow me, you're actually taking a position against me. Here's the subject change. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. Does that have anything to do with what Jesus is talking about? No, it's a subject change. Now, think carefully about what she's, say, what she's saying and who she's talking about. Who's she talking about? Which, is the, which, which was the womb and which were the breasts that brought Jesus and nourished him as an infant? Mary. Is she saying something kind or, or unkind? It's kind. It's, it's beautiful. 
It wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day for mothers to be praised for the achievements and the success of their children. That's all that's happening here. Some woman is so overcome with what he is saying, said, may your mother be blessed. May her womb and her breasts, may that woman be blessed. Look at Jesus, verse 28. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Wow. Was Jesus critical of his mother? No. He said there's something that's more important actually than being his mother. Let that sit for a second. Jesus is politely saying, never mind my mother. He always treats her with unfailing kindness and respect. But he's saying, don't get the wrong idea. What matters is not being related to me. What matters, the real blessings, belong to those who hear the word of God and keep it. What's he telling you here? That if Jesus really is the Son of God who appears in the world to destroy the works of the devil, if there is actually no one like him who is who he is and can do what he does, the only sensible, wise, and saving thing is to follow him, to stand in any other relationship but firmly on his side, even if you're his family, is meaningless. What really counts, and this was the blessing of Mary, she was one who heard the word of God and kept it. The real standing that Mary has with the Lord is not that she was graciously chosen to bring the Son of God into the world. It's her faith in what God was doing to submit and humbly cooperate with this extraordinary miracle. And now Jesus says that blessing, the real blessing, is open to anyone who hears what God is saying and puts it into practice. And that brings me to the end of the sermon, and that brings me to me and to you. Because what you've heard this morning, for all of its strangeness, is the very Word of God. All you've heard in a sermon is my human, simple, humble effort to explain to you what Jesus' hearers would have understood when they heard Him saying these things. But because this is the Word of God, it reaches across 2,000 years because it deals with actual human beings and the actual reality that is really there. And the God who made the world and everything in it, seen and unseen, is telling you where life is. This life is only in His Son. And my great concern is that some of you will hang around Jesus Dabbling in your Bibles, coming to sermons, hearing songs, singing songs, maybe even giving offerings and doing some good deeds, thinking that you've just chosen one of many good paths. And if that's where it ends for you, you will be among those who are most deceived. Please hear me telling you in plain English, your only hope in this world and the next is to trust the Son of God. He is the only one who made reality and who died to save you from your sins and destroy the works of the devil, whatever they have been to this point in your life. All the deception, all the self-harm, everything that sin has cost, only Jesus can roll it back and erase it and put it under his grace. And your only way out is to trust him. And I pray that you will, not only today, if you're trusting Jesus as your Savior this morning for the first time, but that you'll entrust yourself to Him day by day by day, 
keep your head up, your spiritual eyes open, and your prayers going to the Father as you obey the Word of God because Jesus is at war. And if you trust Him, you'll win. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude our service, now people have to deal with you. They've been very kind and patient in listening to me working through this strange passage. Jesus, may the truth of who you are be very real and evident to those who need you. We all do. Some need you desperately. They need to trust you today as their Savior. I pray that they would right now, that they would turn to you in prayer and humbly as needy people say, Jesus, I believe. I know I've sinned. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm turning to you for life. Please save me. Thank you, Lord, that you can take simple, humble prayers from ordinary people like myself. And seeing our need, you can understand our simple beginnings of faith and you can bring us into your family and save us and forgive us. There are people here who know you very well, who've walked with you for years, but they have need to trust you in a new season, in a new challenge, in a new attack. Would you give them grace to do so? And as we conclude this service, Lord, with praise and with giving, may you be loved and trusted. May we be among those who say without any doubt that we are with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.